Well, recently, I was doing some brainstorming, strategic planning, I like to call it. Just me in front of a whiteboard with a marker in hand, thinking about the future and priorities of our church. Helps me get clarity, helps me come up for air a little bit, thinking about who we are as a church, where we're going. And out of this little brainstorming session, what emerged was a list called the components of ecclesiological health. The components of ecclesiological health. And all that means is there's a list of things that make a church really, really healthy and allows the church to make an impact in the world. All that means is just a list of things that the New Testament says that a church should be and do. And on that list of things were some of the following. Number one, to have a healthy church, you've got to have a church filled with people who abide in Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you don't have a church. People who hold fast to Jesus Christ moment by moment, second by second, in desperation and dependence upon him through his word, you've got to abide in Jesus Christ. But to be a healthy church, you have to meet together. You have to have a Sunday morning gathering. The, the only logical expression of a redeemed people is to gather together and worship the one who redeemed them. And at that Sunday morning, you have to have the proclamation of the word. You have to have a theologically rich liturgy. You have to have theologically filled songs that, that cause us to think deep thoughts about who God is. And the music is the escalator that takes us up to the throne room. To have a healthy church, you have to have redemptive relationships. That means my holiness is your business. Your holiness is my business. Your spiritual growth is my top priority. My spiritual growth is your top priority. What it is, is authentic relationships where we are investing the word into one another's lives. And the primary place where that happens in our context is small groups. Small groups, which are profound opportunities to exercise hospitality, to minister the one another's to one another, to invest in one another spiritually. On the list to be a healthy church is you've got to do equipping. Biblical and theological training. That's why we do equipping classes. You have to teach people how to think theologically, not just to think some true thoughts about the Bible, but to think their thoughts with the Bible, to take, help people make the connection between what the text says and how to actually live out their lives in a way that puts Christ on display. To be a healthy church, you have got to have the saints serving the saints, using their spiritual gifts in one another's lives. To have a healthy church, you have to have healthy families. Because if you don't have healthy families, you don't have a church. If you don't have healthy men leading those families, you don't have a church. We need, to, we need to be a church that has families with certain priorities, like the Word, for instance, like the local church, for instance. Helping people understand the roles of men and women, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and why that has cosmic significance. We've got to know this stuff. We've got to help men lead their families with love and equip women and wives and mom to, moms to assist that leadership. And there's all other things that are on that list too, that list of ecclesiological components for church health. But you see, number one on that list, the first thing on that list that you absolutely have to have to be a healthy church, guess what it is? You've got to have God-centered, 
Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated leaders. And they're called elders, pastors, shepherds, who labor in the grime of life to help you be godly and to love Christ and to fight sin and do whatever it is that you got to do to live a life that puts Jesus Christ on display. And imperfect though they may be, they are appointed by King Jesus himself. They're only human. They make tons of mistakes. But be that as it may, they are the first thing on the list that you need for a healthy church. And the reason why I know that is because that is exactly what Paul says to Titus in the letter that he wrote. And the thing about Paul's letter to Titus, the reason why Paul wrote it and put it in an envelope and licked it and sealed it and sent it to Titus on the island of Crete is because what this is, you understand, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, if you want this church to be everything you've ever dreamed it could be in your wildest imagination, I just want you to know that is not out of the realm of possibility for us. We can have that. It is literally there for the taking. But what we must have at minimum are the essential components found in Paul's letter to Titus first. And although Paul's got loads of things he says you've got to have to be a healthy church, the first thing on the list he says you need are leaders. And he calls them elders. To be an elder, you have to be qualified. And in chapter 1, Paul gives Titus 15 qualifications divided up into three categories that an elder has to have to be blameless. And an elder is blameless, get this, precisely because of the virtues that he pursues with passion. Let's put it this way. To be an elder... This is a weighty thing to say. To be an elder, you must be among the godliest men in the church. But you've got to take it a step further than that. To be an elder in the local church, you must be among the godliest men on the face of the planet. Because you could be qualified to lead a team. You could lead a company. You can lead a battle. You can lead an entire country and not be qualified to lead the church, which tells us how high the stakes are when it comes to the church and what it means to be a leader in the church. And yet, I, just, I said this last week, you just got to know, the, the biggest mistake you could make this morning would be to assume that because this is an elder-only passage, that therefore it has elder-only relevance and elder-only implications, which isn't true at all. This text has haunting relevance to every single one of your lives. And the reason is, is because everything Paul commands elders to be is also demanded of everyone somewhere else in the New Testament. Put it this way. Elders do what they do, not so that you won't have to, but so that you will know how to. So what are elders to be and do? That's the question, and that's exactly what Paul answers this morning. This is our last morning in this series on eldership. We have to talk about elders every year. Maybe we won't take four weeks to do it next year, but we've got to talk about this every year. Next week we resume in our series of 1 John, which I'm itching to get back to, but for now we finish our series. And this morning, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see seven virtues. Let's call them seven Christ-exalting virtues that elders and everybody else must pursue if a church hopes to be a church that changes the world. That's how big this is. That's not, a, that's not overdramatic. 
There are seven virtues, Christ-exalting virtues, that elders and everybody else must pursue if a church is going to be a church that changes the world. The first Christ-exalting virtue is this, number one, an elder must be hospitable. An elder must be hospitable. Which seems surprising, doesn't it, that hospitality is on the list? Because back in verse 6, Paul said that if a man wants to be an elder, that he has got to be blameless. And to be blameless is to have a highly imperfect, albeit radically transformed life of exemplary character and holiness. And yet part of what holiness is, is putting certain sins to death with holy violence, which we saw in verse 7 last week. Look at the text. He says, it's necessary the overseer to be blameless as the steward of God. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not quarrelsome, not greedy for shameful gain. And you notice, of course, that every single one of those qualifications are negative qualifications. Elders must absolutely never be those kinds of things. And yet, you see, at the same time, it's not enough. It's not enough that an elder not be an arrogant, angry, drunk that punches people in the face and embezzles money. It's not enough. No, he must also be, verse 8, hospitable. Love what is good, sober-minded, just, reverent, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word. You see, an elder is defined not so much by what he is not, but more so by what he is And again, isn't it weird that the first positive qualification on the list is that an elder is to be hospitable? Like, for real? Like, what does that mean? That that an elder is supposed to put on an apron and bake cookies and entertain guests? Well, just so you know, there should always be cookies. This is not exactly what Paul's got in mind, but if you think about it, it's not surprising at all that hospitality is on the list because notice the last qualification in verse 7. Look what he says. He says that an elder must not be greedy for shameful gain. But then notice in verse 8, the, instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that, an elder must be hospitable. Do you see? It's almost as if he pits greed and hospitality against one another as if they were opposite, and that is exactly what they are. In kingdom economics, if you are greedy and stingy for money, I guarantee you're not very hospitable. And if you are not very hospitable, then I guarantee that you are greedy and stingy with money or other resources. And yet what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? What is hospitality? What does it mean to be hospitable? And why is this even on the list? And it's on the list because without it, the Great Commission does not happen. Or it does not happen nearly in the way it should. You see, the mission of the church, you understand, it advances through flesh and blood interactions, doesn't it? Through warm meals, plates of pie, Cups of coffee, soft couches, and inviting people into your home and sharing your very lives with them exactly like they did in the book of Acts. Because you probably know this, the word for hospitality in Greek is love of strangers or friend of strangers. And what it does, it communicates the idea of warm-hearted, selfless generosity that mediates the tangible kindness of Christ himself. It is the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form as we invite people into our lives and share our very lives with them, especially newcomers and strangers. Because it's easy, easy to hang out with people that you've known forever and feel yourself to be hospitable, but it's a completely different ballgame 
to spend time with someone that you've never met before in your entire life. That's challenging. That's difficult. That is costly. And yet what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? What, what does it say about an elder, or anyone for that matter, or an entire church, if they are not hospitable? What does that say? Because we've all been to clicky church, haven't we? We've all been ungreeted and ignored. We've all been to the cold, unfriendly church where they have zero interest in getting to know you, helping you thrive in Christ. We've all been to that church, and we are never, ever going back to that church. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been those people who didn't greet and did ignore. And at sometimes in our lives, we have at times been that church. And yet, what does it say about us if we are inhospitable, if we are not hospitable? Not to over-dramatize it, but what it says is chilling and extremely revealing. You see, to be inhospitable means that whatever we know and whatever we profess to believe about what God has done in His Son, whatever we believe about that has not truly infiltrated our affections. It hasn't truly penetrated into our very souls. In other words, it indicates that we don't get grace. You see, to be an unhospitable, inhospitable person or inhospitable church means that we have not truly grappled with the implications of what it means to be the recipient of the sovereign mercy of Jesus Christ. Because if we had, then we would see that even when we were strangers to God, in the most horrifying sense of the term, even when we were blind and dead and damned and helpless, God, in His mercy, showed hospitality sending his son to die for sinful strangers and then inviting them into his family through the adopting work of his son. I mean, the mission of Christ, the mission and incarnation of Christ to save sinners is the essence of hospitality. And when we get that and when we love that, then we will be hospitable people. So hospitality isn't just a soft couch and piece of pie and hot cup of coffee. It is that too. But what it is, is the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form where we display the kindness and generosity of Christ himself. So here's the question, elders. Future elders and everybody else, how are you doing with hospitality? How are you doing with this? You have to do this to be an elder. It's really serious. It's a, it's a big deal. And really, the question is, do you see the profound potential to advance the Great Commission through hospitality? Don't, don't you see? Hospitality cracks open the door to allow lost people, not just them, but lost people into our homes. And the reason why that's a big deal is because the world is faky and shallow. It is. They claim to be authentic, but they're not. Hospitality is our opportunity to show people that Jesus Christ is real and authentic. It doesn't have to be every week, and it doesn't have to be fancy. It could be, it could be ham sandwiches on paper plates, for all I care. Because the purpose is less to impress one another and to invest in one another. We must be hospitable. The second Christ-exalting virtue that elders and everybody else must pursue, number two, an elder must love what is good. An elder must love what is good, which sounds kind of generic, doesn't it? You've got to love what is good. 
Because the question is, okay, well, what does that mean? What is the good about which Paul speaks? And what does that look like in actual real life situations in real time? And you just need to know this, this qualification right here, this is far from generic. In fact, what Paul's talking about here goes down into the very core of who a man is and what it is that he loves the most. You see, to love what is good describes your internal desires and passions of what you think is supremely valuable. This is what you love. This is what you enjoy. This is what you prize. This is what you seek for ultimate meaning and and significance and, and satisfaction. In other words, what Paul is after here, get this now, what Paul is after is a man with biblically defined priorities and Christ-exalting passions that define who he is. Put it this way, he loves what God loves, he hates what God hates, and the things that matter most to God are the things that matter most to him. His life is balanced, you see. It is stable. It's lived with profound equilibrium that doesn't get swept away in hobbies or work or distractions or misplaced priorities. He loves what is good. And whatever God has defined in his word, that is good. And what is good is ultimately what the father is doing in and through his son. So deeply flawed though this man be, this man loves Christ. He loves his word. He loves the gospel, he loves theology, he loves the local church, he loves the Great Commission, he loves lost people, he loves using his spiritual gifts in the church. Now to be sure, he loves other things also. He's not a robot. Loves his family. Maybe he loves his job. Loves travel. Loves cars. Loves movies, loves burgers, loves pizza, loves coffee, golf, baseball, technology, Working out, fishing, making stuff in the garage, fair game. Love those things also. That's why God ordained them. But what Paul is talking about is a man who loves all things in their proper order. A man who loves all things in their proper proportion, who doesn't get carried away by misplaced priorities. And it makes total sense, doesn't it? Why this qualification is on the list, it makes total sense. You see, an elder who doesn't love what is supremely lovely and who doesn't value what is supremely valuable, if his own desires and priorities are disordered and misdirected, then his life is not worthy of your imitation and he will not lead you in the way that you need to go. But on the other hand, on the other hand, an elder who loves what God loves and who hates what God hates and whose life is defined by Christ-exalting, biblically-balanced priorities that define who he is, then you just need to know that that person is going to be the most beneficial beneficial and advantageous person to your soul. He is your ecclesiological handyman. The question is, do you love what is good? Elders, future elders, and everybody else, do you love what is good, which means I'm asking you, do you have biblically defined priorities and Christ-exalting passions that define and describe who you are? Do your passions and desires and priorities reflect what God himself has said in his word, what is good, or does something else in your life, has it gained the upper hand? 
Because let me just say this, if you love what God loves and you hate what God hates and you have Christ-exalting priorities that define and shape who you are, you will maximize your life for the Great Commission. And I can't think of any life more significant or fulfilling than that. Number three. Third, Christ-exalting virtue that elders and everybody else must pursue. Number three, an elder must be sober-minded. An elder must be sober-minded. Looking at verse 8. Paul says that an elder must be hospitable. That is, showing the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form. He must love what is good, biblically defined priorities that shape who he is. And number three, he must be sober-minded. Like the opposite of drunk, but in his mind. And your version probably says something like sensible or self-controlled or temperate, but regardless of how it's translated, it's a really, really big deal. And it's a really big deal to Paul because six times Paul uses this word just in the letter to Titus alone. So whatever it means to be sober-minded is central to what it looks like to be a Christian. And if an elder, or anybody else for that matter, is not sober-minded, in other words, they are drunk-minded, well, the signs of that are obvious and unmistakable. If someone is not a sober-minded person, they are imbalanced, they are unstable, they are erratic, they're impulsive, they're easily distracted, they are easily driven to excessive emotional extremes because of their circumstances. And the reason why they are is because they are driven by emotions and appetites and not by truth. That is what it means to be drunk-minded. And so the question is, do you see any of those symptoms in your life? Are you balanced? Are you stable? Are you level-headed? Are you erratic? Are you unpredictable? Are you imbalanced? Are you driven to excessive emotional extremes because of your circumstances? Because I'll just have you know, what the secular world calls bipolar, or addictions, or obsessive-compulsive behavior, or anxiety disorders, or panic attacks, did you know that there's a biblical cure for those things? I'm not saying it's an overnight cure, but I'm saying there is a biblical cure for those things. And if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, okay, what is the cure for those kinds of things? Maybe, maybe he would say medication. Maybe. But most definitely he would say the cure to those things is to be sober-minded. The question is, how do you become a sober-minded person? How do you be stable and balanced and level-headed and consistent and not easily driven to excessive emotional extremes because of your circumstances? How do you become that kind of person? And the answer is, how you become sober-minded, here it is, is to be theologically retrofitted by the supremacy of Christ. To be sober-minded, you must be theologically retrofitted by the supremacy of Christ. Here's what I mean. In California where they have lots of earthquakes. Sarah and I lived there for a few years, and so we lived through a few of those. In California, any building made before 1978 isn't strong enough to handle the earthquakes. So they have to go back and they have to retrofit the building. They have to give it what they call a seismic upgrade. 
They have to go back and modify the existing structure of the building so that it can withstand the earthquakes that would otherwise destroy it had they not given it an update. And you see, in the exact same way, if we are emotionally unstable people, it simply means that we need theological retrofitting for our souls. We need a seismic upgrade in our theology. What I mean is we need a bigger view of the supremacy of Christ. We need to modify the existing structure of our messy thought lives, and we need to stop trying to find joy in our circumstances and instead try to seek our joy in the God who is sovereign over our circumstances. Do you, do you feel the difference? And if you want to get real practical, anytime, anytime that you are tempted to be overwhelmed or frazzled or panic or to lose your mind or to be discouraged, what you need to do in those moments is you need to take a deep breath and you need to ask yourself a series of questions of which the only answer is yes. I've given this to you before. It is helpful for me. I give it again. Question one, does Jesus Christ have all authority in heaven and on earth? Yes. Question two, is Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Yes. Question three, does Jesus Christ uphold the entire universe by the word of his power? Absolutely he does. Question four, is every single moment of my life under the absolute, undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ? Of course it is. And question five, is this moment, the outcome of which seems so uncertain, is this a gift from his hand? And will it, in the end, work out for his highest glory and for my highest joy in his glory? That is exactly what's going to happen. So we need to stop interpreting our lives through our circumstances and instead interpret our lives through the supremacy of Christ. Because you understand, to be sober-minded is not some Zen Buddhist poker-faced indifference to the curveballs of life. Rather, it is the unshakable conviction that Jesus Christ governs everything that comes to pass. That's how we become sober-minded. The fourth, fourth, Christ-exalting virtue that an elder and everybody else must pursue. Number four, an elder must be just. An elder must be just. And confession times, just a confession of sort of the things that, uh, that I, I experience as a pastor. Um, you know, as a pastor, there is regularly the temptation to cave to power players in the church. Power players in the church. You know who I mean by power players? Usually these are the people who are considered the most respected. People who have the loudest voice. The biggest personality. People who have the greatest legacy in their past. The most titles, letters after their name. Usually it's the person with the fattest wallet. These people are persuasive, they're influential, and somehow they have the ability to sway entire churches or groups of people within churches to embrace their ideas, or else, you know the kind of people I'm talking about? And a couple years ago, I heard the story about a millionaire, multi-millionaire, who was attending this small little church plant, and this church was looking for their own building, and this Daddy Warbucks 
man very kindly offered to pay for free, just, just buy them their own brand new building and facility and just give it to them free of charge with one tiny little, little exception to that. His name had to be included in the title of the church. It's a brand new, beautiful facility, paid for in full, given to them for free. All they've got to do is name the church after him. That'll wreak havoc with the pastor's motives. Thankfully, the elders of the church said, forget about it. And that dude and his millions left the church never to be seen again, which means you can tell why he was there. That's a power player. That's the most egregious form of a power player. And here's the thing about power players. Is, you know, I just want you to know, I, I want to please you. I, I really want to make you happy. But the thing is, for a pastor, it can be a real temptation to cater to their wishes, to make them happy, to bend their agenda, to show them partiality and give them preferential treatment and give them what they want, even if it's not exactly what's best for the congregation. And I just want you to know that Paul says that if that's what a man is and does, he can't be a pastor. He can't be. We know that because of the qualification in the list. Look at verse 8. It says, an elder must be hospitable. He must love what is good. He must be sober-minded. And here it is, he must be just. He must be just. Maybe your version says upright, and that's true. Elders should be that too. But the specific target at which Paul is aiming is that an elder must be a just man, which means he's a fair man. He's an impartial man, an unbiased man. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't make deals behind the surface. He, he can't be bought. He won't be bribed. He doesn't engage in political maneuvering behind the scenes and he will never be controlled or manipulated by anybody's wealth or power or position or history or title or success. Bottom line, turn this inside out. What you have here is a man who fears the living God. This is a man who trembles before God. This is a man who knows that the white hot holiness of God peers down into his very soul at this very moment and that one of these days there will be a reckoning the one day he will stand naked as it were for the piercing penetrating vision of Jesus Christ and all of his secret plots and plans and agendas and biases and, and will all be brought to light like cockroaches in the sun. See, a just man knows that in the end, there are no secrets. There are no secrets. And so Christ's community, never, never forget this. Never forget that elders are called to do what they are called to do, not so that you won't have to, but so that you will know how to. And so my question is, are you a just person? Are you an unbiased person? Do you have anything at all shady or sneaky going on behind the scenes? Do you let personal feelings or biases or preferences or fears influence you to compromise biblical standards? At your school, your workplace, maybe even within your own families? Which means what I'm really asking is, do you realize that there is one closer to you even than your own skin? 
and that he sees the very secrets of the soul. What I'm asking is, do you realize that there is a date on the calendar of time that you cannot and you will not avoid? And at that meeting, at that calendar meeting, there will be not one stone of your life not unturned. Everything will be exposed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you have to be afraid of hell necessarily. It just means that his opinion is the one that should matter most and that who he is should drive who you are even when in secret. Fifth, fifth, Christ-exalting virtue. I'm still learning, I'm still learning how to do this. Fifth, Christ-exalting virtue that an elder, everybody else must pursue. Number five, an elder must be devout. An elder must be devout. Because you realize this, you've probably experienced this if you've ever moved around some. You realize that no matter where you live geographically, there's always advantages and disadvantages in the culture in which you live, right? There's always advantages or disadvantages. And the advantages of being what some might call a Bible Belt-ish kind of culture is that lots of people, even if they're not true Christians, accept some form of Christianity, right? And what that means is in a culture like this, that means there's the general freedom to talk about spiritual things and, and there's little hostility, lots of freedom to talk openly about Christ. And being from the Pacific Northwest, that is refreshingly liberating where that is not so much the case. But you see, the profound disadvantage of living in a culture like this is that you get all sorts of people who think that they're saved, but they're not. They're not saved. See, in America, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of professing Christians who, although they know some right answers, they've been around the church their whole lives, they get the culture, they know how to blend into a congregation. They've done the altar call. They've prayed the prayer, maybe even been baptized. Even with all that, there is no life in their soul because they've mistaken cultural Christianity for authentic Christianity. And the, point, the question is, how does that relate to elders? The point is, whatever it is that exists in someone's soul that makes them truly a Christian is also on the list for elder qualifications. Look what Paul says. To be qualified as an elder, a man must be hospitable. He must love what is good. He must be sober-minded. He must be just. And here it is. He must be reverent. He must be reverent or devout. And I know your version says holy, maybe. And that's fine. But this isn't the traditional word for holy. Rather, this term literally has the idea of private, internal, sincere passion and adoration. In fact, this term was used in the ancient Greek world to describe people who feared the gods so deeply that it shaped everything about their lives. See, this is a person, what this is, describes a man who is gripped by the knowledge of the holy. What this is, is a man who is gripped by the profound, sheer, raw holiness of the living God who never had a beginning. You see, what this term does is cut through all the externals and all the pretensions that we use to give certain vibes of ourselves in public. And it takes us all the way down to the very root of what it is that makes someone a Christian. And the question is, what is it that makes someone a Christian? What is it exactly that proves that our faith is real and authentic and that we have salvation? And it's not so much what we say. It's not so much what we do. 
but it's what you treasure and it's what you prize. Or should I say, it's who you treasure and who you prize. That's what Paul's after. In other words, the greatest evidence in the world that your faith is authentic and that you are real is if you find Jesus Christ not merely to be beneficial, but if you find him to be beautiful. And so what Paul is saying is then that if a man is going to be an elder, you had better vet him to make sure that he has something more than a cultural form of Christianity. It isn't just enough that he's been around for a long time. It isn't just enough that he's a nice guy. It isn't enough that he has been faithful in, in some ministry capacity. It isn't enough that he is a successful businessman. It isn't enough that his life seems stable on the surface. That's, that's not it. That's not it. He must be reverent. He must be devout. I've said this before. An elder is someone who there's something about his life that just smells like eternity. That that man has something about his life that's something like the aura of the transcendent, that it is so, so obvious to everyone who knows him that like Moses up on the mountain, that man has been often and long in communion with the living God. You've heard me say this before. A reverent man, a devout man, is a man who lives with a profound God consciousness. A man who knows that no matter where he's standing, he's standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. Because God is there. So the question is, elders, future elders, and everybody else, are you reverent? Are you devout? Which means, I'm asking you, is who God is increasingly beautiful and exhilarating to your soul because that's exactly what it means to be a Christian. And my guess is your answer to that question, because that's a loaded question. The answer to that question is probably the same as mine. Well, I, I, I do love him. I, 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 do, I do find him glorious and beautiful but, beautiful, but so oftentimes I find that I love him so little. And if that's what you say, then let me remind you of two earth-shattering realities. One, Christ came to the planet to pay in full for your failures to treasure God as he ought to be treasured. Two, Christ came to purchase with his death all the power you need to treasure God in the way he ought to be treasured. And you know, you know that the only way, the only means, the only way that you can grow in your treasuring of the living God is through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. It's not a mystical thing. It is supernatural. We must behold who He is in long, long meditation upon the sacred text. And that is the instrument that God uses to increase our exhilaration with the living God. Then we will be reverent. Number six. A sixth Christ-exalting virtue that elders and everybody else must pursue. Number six, an elder must be self-controlled. An elder must be self-controlled. Because you know they say that if it takes 20 years to build a reputation, it takes five minutes to destroy it. Ravi Zacharias, case in point. 
You think about it, you would never carry around a live hand grenade in your pocket. Just walk around doing life, doing what you do. But the problem is you do carry around the most explosive device on the planet in your chest and called the human heart. And the thing about that device in your chest is that it not only has the potential to destroy your life, but the lives of those around you. Which means, which means we need some spiritual bomb squad training on how to not detonate our lives with the explosive instrument in our chest. And Paul tells us exactly what that is at the end of verse 8. Look what he says. Elders have to be hospitable. They have to love what is good. They have to be sober-minded. They must be just. They must be irreverent. And last but not least, they have got to be, here it is, self-controlled. Self-control. And we don't see much of that nowadays. Not certainly in the culture. Sometimes not in the church. And even sometimes, sadly, not even in our own lives. That word literally means in control of strength. In control of your strength in control of the strength and potential you have to do things that would bring your life into utter ruin and destruction. You see, what Paul has in mind here is a man not mastered by his appetites, not mastered by his cravings. He's talking about a man who bosses around his own body and beats it into subjection and grabs his own heart by the throat and tells it what to do. This is exactly what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 6.12. And he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, here it is, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's what he's after. A man who is not mastered by his appetites and cravings. And yet, and yet, there are, with this issue of self-control, there are two issues that we really, two dangers that we have to avoid when thinking about the issue of self-control. Two dangers to avoid. Number one, we must avoid the error of thinking that self-control is a destination at which you arrive rather than a never-ending fight to the death. We have to avoid that. In other words, what I mean is to be self-controlled is a process, not a single point in time. It is a marathon for life, not a one-time sprint. Because you have to understand, the nature of what sin is and the nature of our hearts means that we can never be off the clock of self-control. We can never be. There's no breaks. You can't take a break. You can't let up. The opponent of our heart is never going to give up. The opponent of our appetites and cravings is never going to willingly yield control to you. And so to be self-controlled means that you must always be in the ring, as it were, spiritual gloves on, showing no mercy to our cravings, beating them into submission, kicking them when they're down, hitting them again and again and again. And every time they lift their head, we never let them get off the mat. That's self-control. Or to put it more theologically, To be self-controlled is moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ through his word. That is self-control. Second danger, error to avoid. I'm thinking about self-control, and this one's by far the most important, but you have to avoid the error of thinking that we have it within us to be self-controlled. Because we don't. We don't have that. Now, some people are more self-controlled than others. That's, That's true. But we must remember that we do not have the power within us. What what Paul and the Bible means by self-control is not human willpower or grit your teeth determinism. 
He's not talking about mere behavior modification. It isn't merely learning to do the things that you hate and refusing to do the things that you love. It's not merely modifying your behavior. Rather, what it is, true biblical self-control, is the very transformation of your desires and appetites and cravings from the inside out. So whether it's self-control with food, lust, or spending money, or angry words, or going to bed on time so you can stay awake when you need to stay awake, or psychotic attachment to your smartphone in Christ, you are not a slave. In Christ, you can be self-controlled. You can be self-controlled. Why? Not only because we've been liberated from the clutches of sin's power, but we have been awakened to the superior beauty of Christ, which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. Seventh, Christ-exalting virtue. Number seven, an elder must wield the weapon of the word. An elder must wield the weapon of the word. And because I have minutes and not hours, I mean, this sermon, this, this last point really deserves its own sermon. Maybe a series of sermons, but... Because I have minutes and not hours, I give you one paragraph. Well, three paragraphs. But look what Paul says. An elder must pursue with passion. He says that an elder must hold fast to the faithful word in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Do you see what it is that he just said? This is so crucial for us. Pastors, elders have as their primary, primary, primary occupation to lead and teach and instruct and feed their people with the word of Christ. That is what elders do. The primary occupation on the list. And Paul says that they're to hold fast the faithful word. What does that mean? It means that elders are to hold the line with sound doctrine on pain of death. And what, what two things? What, what two things do elders do? Notice what he says. They hold fast the faithful word according to the teaching in order that he would be able both to exhort in sound doctrine on the one hand and to refute those who contradict on the other. Which means elders play defense and offense. They fight the wolves. They protect the sheep. They beat the snakes. And they shepherd the flock. You have to understand the trade of an elder is truth. Elders, pastors, shepherds are brokers of biblical truth and substance. The, the occupation of a shepherd is to feed and nourish and, and teach and instruct and shape their people with the word of Christ the best they can through the empowering of the Spirit so that they live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. You understand, you pay elders, you pay me to wrestle with the sacred text. You free me up to delve into ancient wisdom. In one sense, you are asking elders to, during the week, stare out the window as they grapple with the sacred text. You have to understand the word of God is front and center in the church because the word is how Christ leads his church. The word is how Christ speaks to his church. It's how he transforms his church. It's how he causes a church 
to be an embassy of light in the kingdom of darkness. And so I close with this. You understand that elders love you and they serve you best, not always when they give you what you want, but when they preach the word and feed the flock and shepherd the sheep and fight the wolves and they lead you behind enemy lines against the powers of darkness. That is what an elder is called to be and do and by his grace and for his glory, that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is a tall order that only Christ, you alone, were able to fulfill. You alone could fulfill these perfectly. We are so far, so far from that. And, and yet you give us the grace we need to do what you command. Lord, grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so, Lord, help us. Help not only elders and future elders, but everybody else. Help us to embody these things so that we could be that embassy of light in a kingdom of darkness. Thank you so much for this time together in Christ's name.